Well, the, these rain spells have been terrific news uh, on two levels. Uh, the first is uh, 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 an intensely selfish and personal reason, and that is that my lawn is getting free watering. And I have a very small lawn anyway, but California water is not cheap. And so anytime you get a godsend free soaking of your grass, you know, homeowners rejoice. Um, secondly, based on a report I heard uh, recently, and based on what is certain to be another drought they say is coming, um, I'm grateful for the water because they're actually tinkering around with the idea of using reclaimed, recycled sewer water for our drinking water. Now, I know the thought of it's gross, uh, but the waste treatment plants that we have in Los Angeles have the capacity to completely clean out all of the toxins and waste and then use this water, and the thought of it drives me crazy. I'm like, Jesus, please, more water, please. And you may be thinking, gross, you know, we're going to be drinking you know, wet water, toilet water. But I have to tell you, scientifically, it's probably cleaner than a lot of the water you already drink. Um, The process is a super-duper complicated one, and it's one of those times where you go, I'm glad it's a complicated process. Like when you find out that your doctor had to go to med school for a long time. You know, aren't you glad that you can't just order a doctor diploma? When you go to get surgery, you want to know it was really hard for this person to get to this place in life. And I am comforted to know that it is not a simple, oh, the way we reclaim this water is we just uh, pour it over rocks and then put it back in bottles. You know, I'm like, you know, there's got to be more than that, please. It is a phenomenally expensive and, and elaborate process. And I bring it up today because our text is going to lead us to a discussion about the nature of the, the sin in our lives and the effect that it has had in terms of staining us. The scriptures tell us that the human condition is such that we can't simply fix it. We can't fix the selfishness and the sinfulness by just doing good works, trying to get rid of the stain of sin, some have said is the equivalent of adding sugar to sewage water. It it doesn't eliminate the problem. For water to be useful, it goes through a treatment plant. And for us to be able to enjoy at peace with God, the presence of God, we're going to have to have that which is unpleasing in our lives, that which is infectious in our lives. It's going to have to be cleansed from us in order for us to enjoy God. Now, before you get discouraged, I know there's a natural resistance in all of us uh, to being characterized as sinful and don't get too worried. We're going to finish the story today. God makes a big deal out of sin Because, well, we do too. You say, well, how is that? Well, when we're wronged by others, we expect and even demand apologies. And if we don't get them, we hold grudges. And there's oftentimes we rightly expect justice to be done and amends to be made. This is certainly true in society. 
We don't and shouldn't sit by idly and look at the sin of systemic racism or economic injustice or the inhumanity of sex slavery and think, eh, no big deal. We should be outraged. We should fight against those things. So why shouldn't God be repelled by our sin? The old saying, it's not a pleasant one to mention in churches, most people don't think their you-know-what stinks. Since we're on the subject, isn't that really at the heart of things? We tend to give ourselves a pass. Our, our stuff isn't that bad. My sin isn't as bad as your sin, certainly. My stuff isn't as smelly as your stuff, is it? We're super tolerant of our own sin, uh, not so tolerant of everybody else's. And, and strangely, in our culture, amazingly intolerant of the idea that a holy God would have any right to be put off by our sin. Now, the gospel is not an attack on our self-image, but rather a gracious observation about the truth regarding our sinful and selfish condition. And this is important to note, and perhaps why so many have been turned off by biblical Christianity. People have been getting only half of the story of the gospel. They hear about the declaration of human condition. They hear about the sinfulness of humankind. And then they leave the movie like when the daughter gets kidnapped and then they don't stick around to find out that the heroic dad actually came to her rescue. If the gospel were only try hard to be good because you're a wretched sinner who's headed for hell if you don't clean up and change your evil ways, then I would actually concur that it would be damaging to the soul, especially if we don't have the capacity to be holy and to be perfect. No, the gospel is a gracious truth-telling. It's the equivalent of telling your college-aged guy friend who just went out and played basketball with his buddies, and he's going to walk out the door to a date smelling like he does. You say, brother, love you, take a shower. It is in your best interest to cleanse thyself. That's a loving act, even though he's going to have to humbly admit, I smell bad. Today I have the privilege of preaching through a passage that I love, and I enjoy dissecting it because it addresses many issues that are relevant to understanding Christianity against the backdrop of 21st century Western culture. Uh, We are continuing our study in John 3, which is Jesus' encounter with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And now we're going to get to a section that many scholars call John's commentary on what Jesus said to the Pharisee. Even though John 3, 16 through 21 is often quoted and put in red letters as if Jesus said it. Many are saying incorrectly that this is what Jesus said. In fact, it's John's look back at the first 15 verses of John 3. And he's saying, this is the summary of what Nicodemus was told by Jesus. You've got to think of it in terms of today's message as a sequel, all right? There, it's kind of like Taken and Taken 2. You know, you, if you're not familiar with these films, um, you'll probably know that there was a Taken 3. But 
We will not have a Nicodemus 3 because unlike most Hollywood studios, we realize the story should rightfully end after the second installment. I digress. Um, If Nicodemus episode 1 featured the popular verse 3, you must be born again. And I love when my old-timey Baptist people quote John 3, 3, they go, ye must be born again. Uh, I've never been called a ye in my whole life, never lived in the Middle Ages. At the same time, Nicodemus episode 2 features perhaps an even more well-known verse, which is John three sixteen, a verse made famous when I was a kid by a rainbow-wearing crazy man who put John three sixteen on his shirt and showed up at athletic contests around the world to get on camera. It became a part of the cultural lexicon. Tim Tebow started wearing John 3.16 on his eye patches. The culture knows about this verse, but they don't understand it, and many Christians don't. And interestingly, today, we're going to use that as the launching pad in our assessment of Jesus' mission, his method, and his mandate. We begin with verses 16 and 17 in Jesus' mission which is that Jesus unquestionably loves his world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In verse 16, you see three concisely expressed truths the global scope of God's love, its sacrificial nature, and its eternal purposes. Uh, Lay people and theologians alike have been correct to say that John 3.16 is the gospel in a nutshell, primarily because, as we understand it, the, the verb have, that whoever would believe would have eternal life, That verse is in the present tense, and it shows that eternal life is not something that is off in the future. It is something that begins today, that what God is calling you to is fellowship with himself that begins now and lasts for eternity. And as for Jesus' teaching that his love was for the entirety of the world, this would have been news to Jews, and it would have been difficult for many super-religious Hebrews to stomach because they'd always seen themselves as God's chosen people, and they'd always thought of themselves as the beloved of God, whereas everybody else sort of wasn't. But the mission of Jesus was going to be first to the Jew, as it says in Romans 1, then to the Gentiles. God was now going to institute a mission that went beyond his loved people Israel And his salvation would be for everyone who would believe. God offers salvation to the world. But as we studied last week, and you can hear last week's message on our iTunes podcast or on our website, it takes a special move of God the Holy Spirit to bring someone to life so they can respond with belief. And while we're continuing in our conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, I I also want very much to show the continuity of the gospel-saving message. It was passed down from Jesus to his apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We here at PRISM believe that the letters from the apostles hold the equivalent weight uh, 
to the other scriptures. The apostles who penned these letters were James, John, Peter, and Paul. The apostles who penned the gospels, the historical accounts, and the book of Acts were Matthew, Mark, and Mark likely on behalf of Peter, according to some scholastic people. Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, and of course, as we're studying, the Gospel of John. Hence, one would contradict themselves by attributing authority to the apostolic writing in the Gospel simply because it quotes Jesus and then dismiss the authority of the letters from these same apostles because they elaborate on themes that some of us find uncomfortable. And you see the symmetry between Jesus' message and Paul's message in John chapter 3 when you compare it particularly to Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 not only parallels the gospel presented in John 3, but has the unique quality of characterizing the entire rescue mission of God as a gift from the Father. The plan of salvation, God's grace to offer it, and the faith needed to embrace it are all described as being comprehensively part of the gift of God, not the result of works, so no one would ever think for a second that they have the right to brag about any of it. It's all for the glory of Jesus and never for our personal pride. We know this too because the word rendered gift in the verse is the Greek word doron, which is used to describe a sacrificial offering that somebody, a free will offering that somebody brings of their own volition. And what that means is that God willingly, freely, excitedly brought forth his offering of his son, everything necessary for our rescuing. He didn't just say, do this, and if you can do it well, then maybe I'll be on your side. He said, I'm going to give you the plan of salvation, and then I'm going to give you the grace to actually carry this thing out. I'm going to give you the grace to be able to call out for mercy, to be able to concede your need for forgiveness. When I was first out of college, I worked as a disc jockey, and in order to take my first job as a disc jockey, you had to do it part-time and at night and and it paid like six bucks an hour. It wasn't what you'd call a lucrative career. But I was hungry to get into the broadcasting business, so I had to pick up another job on the side. So I took my first and historically only construction job. I realized fairly quickly that this is not something that uh, I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And it didn't help that I had a supervisor who was, well, let's just say, less than encouraging. Uh, I was tasked one day with... Uh, digging out a tree stump at a house location that they were working at. And I was sent out there with a chainsaw and an axe and told to go to town. And maybe I had a shovel. But the hole was dug. The problem was it was raining. And so whenever I would dig, 
water would fill up the hole and then try to stick a chainsaw down in there and water's going all over the place and it was impossible to do. So I obviously conceded defeat, went back to the office to have my supervisor raise his voice to me and tell me how lazy I was because I didn't finish the job. He goes, well, why didn't you just take a cup and empty out the water? I'm like, it's raining outside. Are you kidding me? I got neither the tools nor the ability. I mean, I was a 23-year-old working a chainsaw for the first time in my life. I mean, it was a really dangerous situation when you think about it. I was tasked with something I neither had the ability or direction to do. It, it made me feel so badly that I quit not long after that. And this might be the case for some when it comes to the issues of the Christian faith. Somewhere along the line, they, they feel like they've been told you are responsible for this whole thing and you've got to be good and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And they don't realize that the entire process from alpha to omega, from beginning to end, is a work of grace in our lives. It's a gift from God, and, and it's one that he initiates so that we would know that he loves us. His mission was unquestionably to communicate his love to the world. Now let's look at his method. He unapologetically requires faith in himself. Whoever believes, it says in John 3, 18 and 19, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus declares two parallel truths to Nicodemus in this passage. First of all, that faith in him genuine belief that he is the Son of God, genuine reliance upon him for forgiveness is 100% sufficient for your rescuing, for your salvation, from uh, 100% all you need to be free from any judgment. The mirror truth is that the reason God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world was because humanity by nature was already in a state of condemnation that they couldn't escape from. I've heard people who uh, associate themselves with Christianity say, my understanding of Christianity is that Jesus didn't come to condemn, and then that's half their story. They, they don't even explain why he didn't come to condemn. The reason Jesus didn't condemn anybody is because we were already condemned. He would have just been doubling up his efforts. Why waste his breath? He was coming to save because of where we all stood at that time. It says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The only thing standing between somebody and salvation is a humble reliance upon Christ for forgiveness. If one refuses to trust in Jesus and look to him, as we studied last week, in John, the first part of John 3, like the Israelites did in the desert when they were cursed with snakes and then they could look to the bronze serpent that was lifted up and Jesus said, like that, I have to be lifted up and if you'll look to me, there will be relief from the curse. There will be forgiveness for your sins. There will be salvation. And and so John is merely echoing this when he says, if you don't look to the, the Son then you are just going to stay in your condition of condemnation. Ephesians 2.9, 
is Paul's echoing of this. And this not your doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so no one can boast. Nicodemus was told, you can't religion yourself into the kingdom. You can't earn it. And friend, if you want to know the peace of genuine forgiveness, we all have to be honestly aware of all that we need to be forgiven for. If you want to know the joy of unconditional love, you need to know that you don't deserve it. It's not conditioned upon your holiness. It's not conditioned upon your perfection. This is one of the reasons salvation must be by grace alone through faith in Jesus, through faith and trust in what he has done to pay for our sins. And and this is why. Because without it, we're going to be an insecure people. If your condition before God, if your relationship with God is in any way reliant upon your good works to any degree, then the security you have in him is going to rise and fall based on how good you are at living out that credo. If, if, right, if your righteousness is in the equation, then on those bad days, bad weeks, bad months, bad years, you're going to feel a level of insecurity that's not what God intends for you. He wants you to know you're loved unconditionally. He wants you to be able to admit freely, I am in complete and total need of, of your forgiveness. It's not conditioned upon us. If it is, we retain a fearful sense that God has saved us, but at some moment of weakness, we might become unsaved. While some think pointing out the inherent evil in human beings is cruel to the psyche, that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the movie, so don't leave early. Human dignity and value is rediscovered in pursuit, in God's pursuit of his children, in his rescuing his children. We see how unconditionally loved we are because while we were unlovable, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. If you've seen the movie Taken, you know that while grand injustice was done to this young girl, her dad could have been frustrated with her because she lied to him and said she was going to be with friends in Europe and really she was touring around with a rock band and put herself in this dangerous position. But he didn't care about any of that. He wasn't going to fix blame. An injustice had taken place. His baby girl, while foolish, had no reason to expect that she would have been kidnapped. And he clicked into rescue mode. He turned every page. He pursued every lead. He did all he could to find his daughter and rescue her. That's how she knew she was loved unconditionally. He didn't blame her for her stupidity, for her foolishness. He just came and got her. This is God's desire. He would like us to see that, as opposed to seeing his declaration of our guilt as a blow against our self-esteem, it should show us how amazing his love is because he would make provision to save us. Jesus' method 
is unapologetically requiring Nicodemus to express faith in him. And that goes for all of us. Jesus' mandate, therefore, is our final chapter. Verses 20 through 21, Jesus' mandate is that he unequivocally calls us to follow him. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In an echo from his prologue, John records two categories of people, those who love the light and those who hate the light. Through Jesus, believers have now been freed to boldly enter the light and expose those areas of our lives that are displeasing to the Father and receive the power to love and follow him in obedience. When a person is genuinely born again, they have a dispositional change. doesn't mean they are perfect at all. I can assure you of that from my own experience. But somewhere now in the depths of our heart, there is a, now a desire to please God. And he wants to fan that, that change of disposition into flame. He wants us to want to love him more. And we have been now born again to be able to do this. We, we desire to please him. We don't follow him or do the right things because we're trying to earn his favor. His favor is unconditional. His love is unconditional. The gospel proclaims a freedom because the assurance that we have that we were loved long before we ever thought about doing nice things for people or fighting injustice. God loved us long before we ever thought about following him. We also know that the children of God through faith in Christ are assured that their sin has been 100% accounted for, atoned for. They are now, we are now free to look into the abyss of our bad motives and our sinful inclinations and our selfish dispositions and all else in our lives that is hidden in darkness and without fear shine the light of truth into it. The gospel frees us to admit the truth about ourselves without fear of judgment from God. And increasingly, as you mature in Christ, without fear of judgment from others, which is why the key characteristic of a mature Christian is their ability to self-deprecate, to confess and be open about their own brokenness, their own weakness, their lack of concern about whether or not you think they're really impressive as a Christian. Can they lead with weakness? Can they say, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses so that others will see Christ in me? There's also another characteristic that's parallel with that, and that is the more you grow in your faith, the more you should be less judgmental of others who are struggling with sin. And, and if you have that judgmentalism in you, you have to immediately look and say, do I really get how broken I am and how undeserving of God's grace I am? Is, is my disposition towards those who are struggling as gracious as I think God's disposition towards me is? These are tough questions, but we are free now as believers to do this. 
The other freedom that comes from the gospel is the newly discovered freedom to obey Jesus and associate with him. He does mandate that all who call themselves his followers actually follow. He says, whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his words have been carried out in God. What he is saying is what Paul said in Ephesians, and that is that as we come into the presence of God, as we are given access to the presence of God, we are then enabled to enjoy freely the love of God, which causes us to want to love him and others. Paul wrote to the Ephesians like this in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we talk about the conclusion of the Nicodemus saga, it's exciting for me to see that Jesus' declaration of gospel truth, particularly the brokenness of humanity, did not drive Nicodemus away. Jesus didn't need to soften the edges of the bad news about human sin because Nicodemus was given grace to begin understanding the good news about Christ. And we see this evidenced at the conclusion of the Gospel of John. We see Nicodemus drawn continuously into the presence of Jesus, even after being told, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. And you must be born again. And that whoever believes will be saved, but whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already. We see Nicodemus, after the crucifixion of Jesus, making a public declaration of his respect for Christ by honoring him and participating in Jesus' burial. John 19, verses 39 through 40 says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Once ashamed to come to Jesus in the day, now in full daylight, he comes toting a 75-pound bag of burial spices. This is a guy who now is willing to associate with Christ. The gospel is good news precisely because there is bad news preceding it. Its power is not increased by reducing the emphasis on the bad news, but it's rather intensified as long as you can get to the end of the story. Good news is made all that much better when you know the full extent of the tragedy. This is why it's so important for Christians to not be ashamed of what Jesus has done for us. Even if the world around us thinks we're crazy for believing it. People will only experience Nicodemus life transformation and live for God if they know they're unconditionally loved by him. And the process of knowing and growing in your understanding of God's unconditional love for you begins with Jesus' mission to save the world. 
which means everybody on the planet needs his rescuing. It also makes its way through Jesus' method, which is it's a simple act of faith saying, I need forgiveness. It's available. All that's required is humility. And then, of course, Jesus' mandate that for our good, for our benefit, and because he has freed us to not worry about condemnation, we get to walk with him. And in those moments where we don't feel like following him or what he's asking us to do seems nuts or is going to make the people that we live and work with or go to school with think that we're kind of off our rocker, on those days we're able to even go to him and say, help me. This makes me feel stupid. This makes me feel outcast. This makes me feel strange. And Jesus says, I'm gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Jesus is coming and saying, you, the light is not something to run from anymore. You're not cockroaches. You can stay in the light. You can bask in the light because he said, I don't care what I see in the light. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to love you. We're going to work together to bring change to that. It was the Apostle Paul who wrote in his letter to the Romans another echoing of this whole sentiment. Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith.